Great. It's the top of the hour and I'm going to get us started. Well, welcome everybody. Um, it's an incredible delight and honor to be here with you tonight uh, for the second of our um, IAS USA sponsored COVID conversations. Um, I have the very good fortune of being here uh, with my good friend, Judy Courier. I'll introduce myself first and then ask uh, Dr. Courier to introduce herself. Uh, I'm Dr. Jeannie Morazzo and I'm uh, the Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and a member of the volunteer board of the uh, IAS USA. Um, and I have been um, ne never really considered myself a coronavirus specialist, but at this point, I think um, it's all hands on deck. So here we are. And Dr. Courier, did you just want to say hello and I'll then move on to the moderator uh, discussion? Great. Thanks, Jeannie. Um, I'm Judy Courier. I'm the Chief of Infectious Diseases at UCLA and um, also the chair of the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. And like Jeannie, have been um, gotten involved in COVID. Um, at, really over the last few months and um, learning as much as possible and really excited to be here today to, to share some discussion on the topic of COVID and women. Great, thanks Judy. So uh, let me just explain how these are going to go. First, I mentioned that this was the second of several planned conversations. The first one was with Drs. Paul Volberding and uh, George Rutherford, and that happened a couple of weeks ago. That is available uh, if you wanna listen to it. I should note that the shelf life of COVID conversations is necessarily very short, as you probably know. As soon as we say something, there's new information that comes out practically the next day. Uh, so be aware that the these will be available uh, as recorded, but really unclear how relevant what we're saying will be in a month, for example. Um, what we're going to do this hour is try to touch on some issues specific to COVID-19 infection in women. And Dr. Courier and I are going to have a conversation about this. Um, I think I may have lost my, can you, can you still hear me okay? Okay, yeah, I think I may have lost my um, headphones, my earphones, let me keep going. So Dr. Courier and I are gonna have a conversation about um, this topic for about 40 minutes, and then we're gonna reserve 20 minutes for questions and answers. In order to ask us questions, you need to use the Q&A button. The chat is not functioning uh, as it does normally during Zoom meetings, so please do that. Um, and be sure that um, you ask us whatever questions you would like to ask. A reminder too that there is no CME available for this for the reasons that I mentioned before, namely that the content is so fresh and potentially so um, soon out of date uh, that we really could not do that. So this is really for your own information. So I'm just gonna start by giving us a very brief overview of where we are at with COVID-19 in the United States. Um, and if you haven't been paying attention, this has been a really record-breaking week. Texas, Florida, and Arizona have all reported over 2,000 cases each in a single day. Um, in Alabama um, on Sunday, we had 1,000 cases. We're a pretty small state. Um, places that had things under control are now experiencing some resurgences, and that's happening globally too. Beijing uh, has an outbreak right now that has actually forced them to shut down some travel. Um, and the total number of cases that the United States has experienced 
um, is uh, well over 2.1 million right now. And tragically, over 117,000 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. And we'll talk a little bit about who has been most affected and how that's played out for women in particular. Um, yesterday in the United States, there were 25,000 new cases. And if you've been tracking the new cases in the US over time, that number has been pretty much around 20,000 for a while. There was a period in April, late May, where it was climbing down a little bit to around 18, but we're now moving back up. Um, and yesterday, 769 new deaths. So really still a devastating toll. Um, the other thing I would mention is that um, just in terms of the current situation, one of the reasons we think that all this is happening is that many states relaxed their both mask wearing requirements as well as their physical distancing and limitations on numbers of people who could assemble around the end of May and Memorial Day weekend. And the timing for this is perfect, right? Because we are seeing this wave of what happens in a weekend or that period, then going ahead and uh, evidencing as cases in 10 to 14 days, and then later, a little bit later, with um, hospitalizations and that sort of stuff. Um, the only thing I'll say about the epidemiology is to point out that there was a really nice MMWR just yesterday um, that told us a good detail about the first million cases that were reported to the CDC in the United States. And these comprised cases from the end of January, January 22nd through May 30th, so really incredibly uh, up-to-date information. Um, in this database, again, these are reported cases to the CDC. Um, the cumulative incidence, importantly for our topic, was similar uh, in overall in men and women. Um, and if you look at the risk factors for bad outcomes overall, and again, I'm going to ask Dr. Currier to comment on this specifically with women, um, it's really interesting. Cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, and chronic lung disease really played out in the United States population as risk factors for infection. What I thought was really striking um, in this analysis is that people who had any of those underlying conditions were six times more likely to be hospitalized and 12 times more likely to die. So really staggering um, when you look at the profiles of people who have been dying of this infection. Um, interesting too, remember these are reported cases. So probably many of these people got tested because they were symptomatic, especially in those early months. But in this very, very large uh, database, among the people in whom they had symptom information, which was about half, um, only 4% were asymptomatic. Um, and most of the people who were asymptomatic had the really classic triad of fever, muscle aches, chills, and some headache. Um, about 10% had disorders of taste or smell. So those are turning out to be really common. And as you know, that's a great specific screening question uh, for your patients or patients you think might have it. And again, back to what we're talking about tonight, I was surprised to learn that um, among about the 64,000 people in this database who were women of reproductive age, 11% were pregnant. 
So there are data on 6,700 women in this database who were pregnant. So we'll look forward to a really detailed analysis of that, uh, hopefully in the coming um, in the coming uh, year. You know, again, I want to point out some limitations. Surveillance data do favor um, detection of more severe disease, more symptomatic disease probably not representative of, of the whole um, sort of pyramid base of who's infected, but I think it gives you a really good sense of, of what's been happening um, in the U.S. until now. So, Judy, I'm going to turn it over to you and ask you to take us into your um, understanding and perceptions of how these statistics and some of the other clinical uh, aspects of COVID-19 we're seeing have played out specifically in women. Thanks, Jeannie. Yeah, I feel like that um, maybe the title of our conversation today should be all the things we don't know yeah. about COVID and women. And I think that, um, but why we should care and why we should pay attention to this as, as, we, um, as we move through um, this, this uh, period of time. Because I think early on, we had the sense that COVID uh, was a disease that impacted men more than women, um, and obviously people who are older. Um, but we're finding that you know, I think that um, the importance of comorbidities as increasing the risk, uh, I think, are going to be really important to look at uh, in the U.S. The sort of co-occurrence of um, of obesity and heart disease and, uh, and lung disease um, may mitigate any beneficial or, or sex advantage that women would have um, to have a lower risk of acquiring the disease. So I think we're just really at the early stages of, of understanding this. I, I know here in Los Angeles County where we are seeing 15 to 1700 new cases a day, um, about half of the cases are women, um, 50%. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know data on the outcomes um, by sex uh, yet uh, in any kind of detail, but I think the database like the one you just referred to and the MMWR and others will, will really help us to understand this. But it's, it's clear that, um, that obesity and hypertension, heart disease are, are key uh, mediators of, of bad outcomes. And then the other issue is pregnant women. I, I think early on there was a sense that there didn't seem to be any excess risk of poor outcomes in pregnancy, but we know that Pregnancy, uh, that pregnant women have a predilection for viral infections. Um, influenza is a perfect example where more severe disease is seen in pregnancy. And there, there really does need to be a, a major focus on getting more information about pregnant women. And fortunately, um, there have been some great efforts that have been put together um, very quickly, like so many things in COVID, a group of, um, of uh, investigators at UCSF, <clears throat> Jessica J Jacoby, Stephanie Gaw, uh, Valerie Flannerman, and um, Yalda Afsham from UCLA put together a registry called Priority, which is uh, following, uh, uh, it's basically the kind of registry where you can put your patient's information in there, and they're doing it kind of in real time online. They're tracking the outcomes of of pregnant people um, who are COVID suspects, as well as confirmed COVID cases, and then the outcomes of their, um, their newborns. So I think this is going to be an incredibly rich source of information. Uh, and it's really important that the word get out that this is a registry that's available uh, 
across the country and hopefully people from all different settings will be able to take advantage of it and we'll learn more about the outcomes of, of, of COVID in, in pregnant women. Yeah, that's great. I, I think the pregnancy question um, is really interesting and actually it's uh, whoever just uh, put those questions up there. It's perfect because I was just going to get into some of the pregnancy data. So um, the, the best data, I think, and the best guidance, just so you all know about it, the NIH guidelines on COVID-19 have a nice section um, on management and pregnancy. Obviously, they're treatment guidelines, but they collate the information that the American College of OBGYN, as well as the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, um, have uh, distributed, and especially the SMFM group has a fantastic uh, document online that you can take a look at. Um, the The general sense, if you if you look at those guidelines, is that sorry, I can't seem to turn my regular phone off here. Um, is that there really uh, hasn't been a good sense of adverse influenza-like outcomes in these women. Um, and um, the, probably the best cohort is this Wuhan cohort, which was 147 women. All of them underwent C-section because it was before we knew anything about this. It was during the Wuhan outbreak. And what that allowed them to do, relevant to the question from uh, Mana, um, was to test specifically for the presence of SARS-CoV-2, the COVID virus, right, um, in amniotic fluid, in breast milk, in cord blood, and in the neonatal nasopharynx. Um, they did that for only six of these patients. They couldn't obviously do it for everybody, and they found it in none of those sites. There has been one report of a vaginal swab uh, in pregnancy that has had COVID or SARS-CoV-2 detected. Um, but what I think is, is interesting is that you know, and Judy, I'd love your thoughts on this. There seems to be a very low rate of viremia overall with COVID-19 and in, with coronaviruses in general. And when you think about transplacental infection, intrauterine infection with the kind of things we worry about, the torch infections or herpes virus, you know, viremia, CMV, is a, is a major player. So we aren't really seeing that in COVID-19, and that may turn out to be quite protective in terms of uh, transplacental um, uh, transmission. So yeah, I, about I think that. for vire viremia, it's a really important question. I don't think we know everything there is to know about this yet. And I think I as agree. people are developing uh, more sensitive tests and assays, you know, potentially in later disease and more advanced disease, we may see viremia. So it may be true that it, that it depends on the severity of the disease, what, whether there would be any risk. But, um, but you're right, so far it, it looks reassuring. Yeah, it does. And I think the, the guidelines, again, from ACOG and MSFM uh, really say that in terms of management of pregnant women, there should be, the, the delivery should be um, made by obstetric indication. So no indication for C-section, no indication for early intervention. Um, again, it really depends um, on what's going on. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about that um, is the issue, let me ask, answer some of the questions first and then I'll go down to my other points about pregnancy and I want to ask you a question about one thing we might see in pregnancy. Um, so I think transplacental transmission of antibodies and antibodies present in breast milk is a fantastic question. We haven't really even validated a great antibody test for use in um, people. 
I mean, we have a couple of good antibodies tests and Judy, I'd love your thoughts about that. I am not aware that anybody has validated um, performance on breast milk or anything related to the female reproductive tract. So I would say that we don't know. Um, we don't even know anything about genera generation of systemic IgM and IgG during pregnancy um, and whether there's transplacental uh, a crossing. Um, Judy, anything to add? No, I know that people are collecting breast milk to try to look at this uh -huh. issue, but I don't know of any results of that yet either. Okay. Um, and then Gina, Gina asked if we know anything about ACE2 receptor expression in pregnancy. I do not know the answer to that. I can't think of a reason it should be different. Yeah, no, I do know that there's some evidence that it's less in women, and that was one of the, you know, less in women overall. Right, yeah. generally women yeah. express it less, and that would be why the disease might be uh, less common or potentially less severe, but I don't know whether it's modulated at all by uh, by pregnancy. It's a great question, Gina Brown. It is. Thank you. I'm glad you're on, Gina Brown. Um, so, hey, let's talk about um, specific therapies. So right now we have one product, right, antiviral product that uh, has emergency use authorization for approval, and that's remdesivir. Um, have you used it to treat pregnant women? Um, well, so... Remdesivir, I personally haven't used it, but I know it's been used in, in our hospital. Um, remdesivir, um, you know, it, as you said, has this emergency use, and it was studied in, a, um, in the ACT-1 trial, uh, which I have to say was really put together so quickly and enrolled so fast. It's really impressive to see clinical trials being able to be done in a pandemic and to be done so fast. Um, around the world and to get to get answers because that's really what we need to be able to understand treatment. Um, and so um, pregnant women were not included in the trial, but they were included in compassionate use. Um, and, and interestingly, in the rollout of remdesivir now through the distribution program, which has been a little spotty to getting off the ground, pregnant women are still able to get it now through the compassionate use. Um, so to answer that question, I, I think just thinking about that trial, I looked at the trial um, you know, for enrollment of women to see kind of how many women were included. And the study was 65% men. Um, mm -hmm. and, but they did look at outcomes by sex and the, um, the recovery rate um, was the, the difference for women was also significant. And if anything, it looked like the recovery rate ratio was higher. Um, right. So, it, there was no evidence that women didn't, you know, that had, had more toxicity or, or a worse outcome. And it was nice to see that sex analysis in the primary report. Um, I think more, you know, more information certainly is needed, but um, it is available. Now we heard yesterday about the results of the recovery study uh, for dexamethasone. And well, we kind of heard about them by press release. Right, very preliminary. So, We've yeah. all learned we need to wait for the Hopefully, peer-reviewed uh, manuscript to see uh, to see what the uh, you know the details of it. But it looks it looks as if for at least for people with advanced disease and serious um, illness uh, that that appears to play a role. And and it did reduce mortality, which is by the press release, uh, which is something that uh, remdesivir didn't show a significant. It showed an improvement in mortality, but not statistically significant. So. Um, you know, I think that's that's promising um, as a poten another potential adjunctive therapy. 
Right. So it's interesting, the, um, the NIH guidelines, as well as the uh, ACOG and MSM, um, MS, MS Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, I can't get MSM off my mind, sorry, it's, it's my, my other job, um, it actually point out that none of the drugs that we've been talking about, including tocilizumab, um, azithromycin, and hydrochloroquine, although we're a little bit less excited about those now, uh, remdesivir, and plasma, convalescent plasma, are necessarily contraindicated in pregnant women, nor are steroids. So, you know, coming back to Carlos Del Rio's point here, and something that you and I have talked about a lot, um, there are really not a lot of reasons that these women should be uh, excluded from these studies. I think it's a real problem, and not having these agents tested in pregnant women or breastfeeding women is, is really a big issue. So, um, you know, I think the, the, it's good to know you can use at least the remdesivir comp for compassionate use. Yeah, and, I, and and well, it's sort of ironic. I mean, I know that um, clearly hydroxychloroquine did not fare well as a therapy for inpatient uh, advanced disease and the population with high mortality, but it's certainly a drug that there's a lot of experience using in pregnancy uh, and in women um, and has a clear safety profile, but there's no evidence of benefit of that at this point. Um, so. I guess it's sort of a moot point, um, but we do need, I think the big, you know, the big point is that we do need to be able to include pregnant women in these studies. So convalescent plasma trials have um, included pregnant women and I think will continue to, and as new uh, therapeutic agents are rolled out, I, I think this is really important. Um, I think we also need to focus uh, more on, and this is just my own personal bias, but also on studies of people with mild disease to prevent hospitalization. Um, as a, this is a little bit trickier because the predicting who's at risk for progressing mm -hmm. is is not 100% clear, and so we want to treat those those people who are at highest risk, and we need to get better at at identifying them. Um, and only I think through well-controlled studies will we learn what we need to know about that. Um, but it's exciting to see monoclonal antibodies coming out, coming into the uh, clinical research arena and other novel, um, hopefully more antivirals, and hopefully we'll be able to get more data on those soon yeah. across the spectrum of disease. So let me, let me ask you, you asked me when we were talking about um, where to take this conversation to comment on um, where the gaps are in um, trying to figure out how to treat women or if we should think about treating women differently than men. And one thing that, that led me down uh, this really interesting path um, was the whole sex hormone receptor issue with COVID pathology. And um, this question of whether androgen blockade in particular, so getting to the concept of why do men do worse? Is it testosterone? Why do women do better? Is it because of a lack of testosterone or is it, or is it because of estrogen? Apparently there are data, which I did not know before, that estrogen uh, may actually help uh, heal acute lung injury, which I, I wasn't aware of. But the Italians, um, in their experience in the Veneto region, um, did this really interesting analysis. A lot of patients um, looking at the outcome of mortality in patients with cancer. And as you would expect, cancer is not a good thing to have if you get SARS-CoV-2 and they had considerably increased mortality, except for the subset of men who had prostate cancer and were on androgen blockers and they had a remarkably reduced risk um, of mortality. And 
Um, the, the, in fact, there is now, I think, a study at UCSF that is being done to look at androgen blockade in severe uh, SARS-CoV-2. And I don't know, it looks like Paul's on the, line, on, on, the, on the participant list. I don't know if people know anything about that. But it turns out that there is this, um, there's a protein that, there, there's a membrane-bound enzyme that cleaves um, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, and it's actually in respiratory epithelium, um, and it actually is responsive to androgens, which I did not know. So there are people who are really interested, and also the people who are looking at um, uh, drug libraries through, um, through computational models, I think have come, to, come up with a lot of hormone receptor modulation drugs that might be of interest. So when we think about that, you know, it may be that something around um, the female hormone status, whether we'll find out that women who are on different hormonal contraceptives uh, might have uh, different uh, courses or whether that might be one of the reasons they're protected relative to men will be really interesting. Yeah, and, and I think, um, I know there are some other studies in development looking at this sort of axis of intervention, but the other group would be women who are taking estrogen blockers for other therapeutic yep. reasons in breast cancer. Exactly. For example, I think that's something that we need to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, yeah I think that's a great question. Um, the other thing that I was going to ask you about is this whole issue um, with um, hypercoagulability um, in antiphospholipid antibodies and the fact that we clearly are seeing um, coagulation events, thromboembolic events in young people, lots of reports of stroke in young people. We know from uh, some studies that, autopsy studies and others that have looked at the prevalence of DVT, people coming into the unit. Um, I worry about that in pregnancy and the general hypercoagulable state in pregnancy. And, and I looked a little bit into that with the guidelines and um, it's not recommended right now to do anything but prophylactic anticoagulation in pregnant women who are infected with COVID. But I do think it's something to think about and people have thought about measuring D-dimers um, to intervene earlier. And I, I don't know if, if you've seen any more on that or know any more about that. Yeah, no, I think it's really a fascinating area. I know there's a, um, a suite of trials that NHLBI is getting ready to launch, looking at different strategies for anticoagulation. And I think it's a kind of thing where places, you know, all around the country, it's great that we have these guidelines that have come out to help in the absence of data from trials. But uh, as people develop practices around different things, it makes it harder to, yeah. to do trials sometimes. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how with this changing landscape of the use of different anticoagulation strategies, we'll, we'll be able to um, really understand what works and what doesn't work. Um, and again, it's all about like, how do we predict who these, who the people are that are going to have these more significant uh, risk and would, you know, are there early biomarkers, like you say, D-dimer early in disease? Um, right. Had somebody asked me the other day about, um, they had a, a, a patient who they were, they were testing for COVID and the test came back negative, but they had an elevated D-dimer and did that, should they repeat the test? And I thought, right. why did you do the D-dimer? Right. And then I thought maybe, maybe they know something I don't know about like- Exactly, how, how, yeah severe disease, but I think people, you know, really trying to understand this risk profile and the biomarkers that identify those at risk so we can target our interventions a little bit more and not just try to give everybody everything. 
Yeah, and, and that's a great point to remind, and I just want to keep remind people to keep putting the questions in. We are going to save the last 20 minutes, and we will go back to those, so um, don't, don't uh, despair if we don't address your question right away. So just a reminder, um, Judy mentioned the ACT-1 study, which um, was the study that was published in the New England Journal of, of Remdesivir versus placebo in people with moderately severe to severe uh, COVID-19 who were hospitalized. Act two, which is now over 60% enrolled, I believe, uh, in global sites, uh, so well over 700 people enrolled right now, has now randomizing people to remdesivir and versus remdesivir plus baricitinib. Baricitinib is a JK pathway inhibitor, so it's an immunomodulator. So the idea here is, as Judy says, you know, you know you have at least an antiviral that has some effect can you add this immunomodulator on and really try to alter the course of the disease? I guess one concern I have with that is that I agree with you. I'm not sure this one size fits all makes sense because some people may need the immunomodulator and it also may have to do with timing. I, you can't really do that in a randomized trial to start right off. But you know, I think if you're thinking about that immunomodulator having an effect in that third phase of the inflammatory storm portion of the illness, you would think you'd like to do it right as that was starting. So just a reminder, people are looking at this. And there's a bunch of other cytokine inhibitors that people are looking at in isolation, right, without remdesivir. Right. And I think as the studies have been done, remdesivir has kind of been weaving in and out. And so they'll all have to try to control for whether it was in combination or not. Um, but, but we'll yeah. see. We're starting to, I think we're really, at, you know, now at the point where studies that got started in March and April are going to start to report out and we're going to have a lot more information. And I think it's important that we see that information broken down by sex where possible and um, so that we can learn about this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, let's see, what else did I want to ask you about this particular topic? We talked about the viremia. We talked about using um, about general management in pregnancy. Um, did you have a sense or do you, given your focus on cardiovascular disease and HIV, do you have uh, any sense of why cardiovascular disease seems to be like the primary risk factor? And do you think that's going to turn out to be different for men or women? I mean, um, this is a very hypothetical yeah, I, question. It's a really, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question and it, it's, it's also hypertension, particularly exactly. specifically very, you know, and I think everybody really focused early on and um, about was there something about this the ACE2 inhibitor and the ACE inhibitors and you know was there this axis here does this explain it but it, it just hasn't really um, come really been clarified yet so I, I, I don't know the answer to that um, and I think it's fascinating women have different risks for cardiovascular disease over the lifespan and um, and I think that you know there there may be that the it, what I'm interested in seeing is whether women who have these comorbidities of obesity and hypertension are have excess risk of COVID, you know, independent of sex. Basically, does that does that make the risk right. basically mitigate any protective effect that being female might have had? Um, right. And I think we'll see more about that soon. I was thinking about the. Um, you know, pregnant women, another issue just for sort of clinical, and I'm not an obstetrician, um, but you know, in the diagnosis in pregnant women, are they more likely to be diagnosed late? Um, there's very common uh, nasal congestion, you know, estrogen effects on uh, 
sniffles and shortness of breath can occur physiologically Absolutely. during pregnancy. So the symptoms might be might be a little bit missed. And I think without a, a high index of suspicion, also I think the willingness to come and get a test or you know go. I think I think a lot of times just trying to stay away from other people and um, and uh, reduce your risk of exposure might just delay the time of uh, of diagnosis. So I think it's important that we um, really remain vigilant about trying to make the diagnosis early um, in that setting. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with you uh, for sure. I wanted to ask you some questions. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess I was asking you a lot of questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, you've been doing a great job. I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, just the, um, I guess we talked a little bit about these treat, the treatment guidelines that have come out and, you know, just what's your sense about the, um, about the, just whether they've addressed the gaps in our understanding about treatment and women of reproductive age. I just feel like it's been pretty well covered in all the inf you know, information that's out there. I mean, where, where should we be focusing our efforts here? Well, you know, I think one concern I have is that it's not, when we talk about women of reproductive age, right? Um, remember many of the trials of new agents don't just require you not pregnant or breastfeeding, but you have to be on um, hormonal contraception so that you can't get pregnant. So when you look at those three things, it excludes a huge population of women. And as I'll talk about when we talk about vaccines, you know, if you don't have a product for reproductive age women, you don't have a product for healthcare workers, um, given how many nurses are in particular uh, reproductive age women and how many physicians are reproductive age women. So um, I think we have a very big gap. I think the question is going to be, is this an opportunity to do something that the NIH has never done particularly well? And that's to rapidly perform bridging studies um, to get it into pregnant women or women who are at risk for falling pregnant, um, as the as they say in Africa, um, you know the the microbicide trial network, um, which was studying topical agents like tenofovir, also vaginal rings, had a very clear pathway for advancing products through once it was shown to be working in 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 women who fulfilled all the usual exclusion criteria to then advance it into pregnancy and starting in early, late pregnancy and then working your way backwards. I feel like this is our time to really force uh, NIH and FDA in particular to sort of say, look, we have to accelerate the formal transition of getting these studies, not just compassionate use and a registry, but actually getting it FDA approved um, in pregnant and breastfeeding women and women who aren't contracepting who wanna get pregnant. Um, with the burden of this disease, this is not a rare disease, we should be able to do this. And I think that women um, would be very willing, um, of course not everybody's going to be willing, but given the potential for bad outcomes, I think you would definitely be able to do it. So I think that's my concern, you know, we, we just don't know um, what, what this is going to look like. The, the, the one good thing about this is that, you know, we're looking at potentially brief periods of treatment, right? It's not like HIV where you're looking at lifelong suppressive therapy and you're worried about long-term, um, you know, embryogenic effects um, as women are pregnant throughout their lifespan variably uh, over time. So, so I think um, it really should be a priority and I have not heard very much about it, which I think needs to change.
Well, I, I mean, I think that the um, information can come from multiple sources, and there is a, a question in the chat of an abstract that's been submitted about the use of remdesivir from the Compassionate yes. Use Program in Thank pregnant you. women, and I think that that is an, an excellent, you know, an excellent way to get information uh, out. And I think the registries that are being put together, I, I think we need to gather data from many sources here to get it as quickly as we can, because. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly agree that bridging studies are important, but being able to set those up in the right places that are going to, you know, have the, the, the patient population, I think using other sources of data collection that can get further, can be, you know, cover a broader area faster or is, is also really important. And the compassionate use programs, I think, can also yield important mm -hmm. data. It's great to see mm -hmm. that being put together. Um, it is, but even that, uh, it sounds like um, uh, William Short mentioned that they fought a battle with IRB and we were able to include pregnant women. So again, I come back to this bias of, you know, even to use compassionate use um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a bias, but it's a, I understand it's informed by caution um, and, and, and it's not without, um, without sense, but, but it can be difficult um, to even get the kind of data you're talking about. Yeah. It's great that you have that. So, so pre prevent, let's talk about prevention because that that is the other big you know thing that everybody's waiting for. We 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 need. Tr I feel we need both treatment and a vaccine because even if we have a vaccine, it's not going to be everywhere immediately. So we need we need to kind of hit this from both sides. But um, as we think about the vaccine, and it's just it's exciting to see so many vaccines coming into studies so quickly and. Um, and plans to evaluate them and, and manufacture them at the same time in case, you know, in case they work. But mm -hmm. how, are, how are the vaccine studies going to deal with the issue of women of uh, reproductive age and pregnant women? Are they going to be included or are they going to, how are they going to be evaluated? Right. So my understanding, uh, you know, as, as you probably know, there are, there actually are, I think like 160 vaccine candidates globally, if you really count up what people are doing at various stages, but there are the five uh, companies and their candidates that are going forward as part of the U.S. effort. Um, the vaccine that is closest to starting um, in clinical trials is the Moderna vaccine, which is the mRNA vaccine. And remember, it's just literally um, giving people the sequence that allows their cells to then create the antigen that will provoke antibodies to the spike protein in this case. Um, the only candidate that I know, um, and so that's, that's the first one, and that's supposed to enroll in a phase three study starting early July and will enroll up to 30,000 people. There will not be any uh, restriction on gender, so they will try to enroll men and women. Pregnant women will be excluded uh, from that study, um, as will breastfeeding women. I do not know, I have not seen the protocol, uh, whether women who are not actively contracepting uh, will be um, allowed to enroll. I hope that they will not require that because that means that women will get pregnant um, after getting the vaccine and can be followed forward. So they will have a registry for people who have gotten uh, the study product and they will follow them through for any events like pregnancy. So there will be a pregnancy registry, which I think is great and it's probably given your comments about how we need to work in the framework of 
of what we can and can do from a regulatory standpoint, um, that's probably the best that we can do. The, um, so that's the only one that I know of a protocol literally being ready to, almost ready to go, at least in, in close enough uh, shape that it could start in early July. Um, the other vaccine that is a close second that is in later phase studies, I should mention, um, is the AstraZeneca um, Oxford vaccine. That's an adenovirus-based uh, vaccine um, that was used to, um, uh, it's a chimp monkey model, and basically it's a modified adenovirus to elicit coronavirus antibodies. Um, it's um, hard to imagine um, that that will be um, at all um, allowable in any kind of situation where women are probably not contracepting actively. If anything, I would think that that would be more of a concern. Um, but we don't know yet. We haven't seen the protocol. We haven't seen the plan. So, so I think the best you can say is that women will get pregnant in these studies. Um, and if you're having 30,000 people, you're going to see some pregnancies. Again, I come back to this concept, and I know I've told you this before. If we don't have a vaccine for reproductive age women, we don't have a vaccine for healthcare workers. Um, so really, really critical to do that, given our risk. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really important. And that's, um, I think having this plan to um, be able to follow women who become pregnant on the study will at least yield some important data. The other sort of prevention modalities that are being dis discussed are post-exposure prophylaxis, um, either with uh, convalescent plasma, uh, I think a hyperimmune I um, IVIG, um, hopefully a preparation that could be given IM um, uh, would be will be um, on the landscape, and then again the monoclonal antibodies are also being discussed as potential um, prevention modalities after uh, exposure. Um, yeah. and so that I think there's less of a concern there for well we'll see, but it, I, you know hopefully <laughs> those studies will those studies are going to have to be pretty large, um, but hopefully yeah. they'll make uh, the appropriate accommodations. Yeah. Um, well, I think that um, we are amazingly, I know we could probably talk about this for a really long period of time because I just keep coming up with questions and I should ask if you have any more for me since I did ask you more than you asked me. We can look at the questions that are on okay. the chat here. Um, Let's do that. So this question, the first question, um, and a couple of people have asked this, um, what about blood group type being protective? And what do you think about that? You know anything yeah, about that? I just don't know the answer to that. I, I've seen a little bit of the data, and um, and um, you know, I it's interesting in terms of what it might mean about the pathogenesis of the disease. But I guess it's not something we can do anything about in terms of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> modifying sure. it. Not a modifiable risk factor, but um, but uh, I, I think it's fascinating, and I really look forward to having better understanding of it. I just yeah. don't know. Yeah, I couldn't, I was thinking about it. I mean, a lot of this data, I just want to come back to this, this preprint. Um, again, so one of the casualties of, of the COVID era has been um, a real, I would say, threat to the integrity of, of um, the scientific publication process, not only because, you know, we're seeing so many preprints and people are taking the preprints pretty seriously. Remember, preprints are not um, uh, or, or well, preprints are peer reviewed, right? Preprint isn't really the right word, though, right? No, it's, it's the um, it's the material, <laughs> med archive, medrix, med archive thing. The thing I can't. So it's the pre, it's the pre peer review material that's coming out, and the press release data that's coming out. 
Um, I mean, I really can't let it pass that both the Lancet and the New England Journal published gigantic studies that were based on probably fabricated data. Again, I don't know that we know yet that yet, but the surgisphere data. Um, anyway, and so, so I would just say again, I think as a reminder to look at all these reports with great caution, and I'm not aware of a really rigorously done peer-reviewed study that looked at this blood group question yet. I could be wrong. Um, so I do not know, and I can't say anything more intelligent than that. Um, well, there's a great question here about differences in pre- and postmenopausal women. And I, there may be data there that has really broken down the risk by, by age within, uh, within the female population. I think what's hard is uh, making sure that we control also for the prevalence of the comorbidities that may also be um, impacting. So holding those steady, does it being postmenopausal increase your risk? You might think that it would since older age does, um, but specifically um, the, the, the contribution of that compared to the other things, um, we just don't know. I think it's a great question. Yeah, I do too. Um, I, I wanna sort of just mention that the, the blood type, somebody else mentioned this, the blood type that was linked to uh, possible bad outcomes in the Wuhan data was A positive. And yes, Christine Brennan notes that the New York data attempted to sample, uh, to, to adjust for this and looked at typo being, of course, as you would expect, the opposite and maybe not associated with better outcomes. But again, I, I just don't think we really know. Um, want to, um, I think that we covered this issue from Dr. Adepoju about evidence of maternal fetal transmission during pregnancy. You know, there is one case from the Canadian Medical Association Journal that is a possible true uh, transmission event, I think. Um, it, but even the authors in the title said possible transmission, uh, perinatal transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Um, and and the, they did a very nice job, I think, of, of looking for the presence of, of the virus by PCR as well as antibodies in all the right times. So, but I think that's probably the exception that proves the rule. So I think it's very uncommon based on, on what, we're, what we've been seeing. I have a question for you, actually. I, this is I really interested me as to whether um, during the COVID quarantine um, part of the pandemic and where everybody's been sheltering in place, have we seen a reduction in sexually transmitted infections in, in different communities, in women and men, uh, during COVID isolation? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question. Um, I'm also waiting for the COVID baby boom, right? Which I can't believe people aren't talking more about probably next Christmas. Um, uh, I don't know because our, I mean, this is a fascinating question. And, and you know, if I had thought about this in, about two months ago when I was not overwhelmed with COVID panic and anxiety, I would have like done a mail out um, self-collection swap thing and done it every month over the course of this because my sense is that um, clearly people might be having more sex in isolation, but they're probably having more sex with people that they usually have sex with as opposed to new partners. I can't believe you got me to talk about STDs and the COVID talk, my goodness gracious. Um, but my sense is that the, the network, uh, the, the opportunities for sexual mixing in networks has been dramatic. I mean, people will always find a way, of course, you know, our patients always find a way. Um, but uh, I think that the opportunities for mixing are probably, were probably greatly reduced. So I suspect 
but that might be offset by the fact that people weren't getting diagnosed. So all the clinics were closed. RSCD clinic here is still closed, probably won't open until August, um, largely because they can't get PPE and, and the health department is so overwhelmed with COVID that they just can't get it together. So could be a combination of, you know, I'm worried about the boom now that people are going out there and, you know, no longer practicing physical distance and in the setting of not having adequate diagnostic infrastructure and care. So it could be, it could be a real thing. We'll have to see. Yeah, another great um, question that was raised here is what, do we know anything about transgender women uh, and um, COVID risk and outcomes? And I, I have not seen anything about that. I think it's a really interesting question and um, one that we need to pay attention to. It's a great question, especially given the testosterone question. So for, um, you know, for trans men, um, is that going to be a, a risk? And that's a fantastic question. Um, those granular data are not in this CDC summary. Somebody also asked a great question, if I could just address it now, also about um, specific risk factors in, um, pregnant, in, in pregnant women, I think, were you seeing the same sorts of comorbidities that we were seeing overall? So there you go. Any data, Dorcas Baker, thanks. Any data on pregnant women with comorbidities such as coronary vascular disease, uh, diabetes, or ob obesity? Obesity is a great question. I think we probably will see that. And if we look at um, gestational weight, that might be an issue. Um, I would guess that with those several thousand people who are pregnant in this data set, we might be able to look at that because it had data um, on comorbidity. So look forward to that coming out of CDC. Yeah, and then also just a, another plug for the priority registry. They have 800 um, people enrolled. I think 500 are pregnant women. Um, and I think they're going to be looking at these issues really closely. So look forward to seeing their data when it comes out about both patient reported outcomes and presence of symptoms and then also, you know, how, how people do. Right. So many great questions. Judy, you want to pick another one? Wow. Um, just to um, highlight, we were talking about the, the level of evidence about the blood type, and Dr. Landovitz reminding us that the New England Journal published a GWAS study that showed an association in an Italian group, a cohort with blood groups. So um, there, there, I think, are, are some good data. So that's And for those of you who don't know, those are genome-wide genome association studies. So again, interpret with caution. That's, that's my, my clever comment about that. Um, um, do you know of a commercially available quantitative PCR for SARS-CoV-2? I do not. I Most don't. of the labs I know who have done that and have, have looked and what they've used it to look for obviously is the you know, quantitative changes uh, relative to time um, and also comparative performance of different diagnostic tests, but that's been an in-house thing. So I do not know. I know people are developing them um, for research use, but I don't know of a, of a quantitative one that's commercially available. Yeah, yeah. Lots of comments about rebound to STI spikes, right, surveillance. I mean, who's doing STI surveillance right now? We can't even do uh, COVID surveillance. Um, uh, so great, great point. Um, there are a couple of other interesting questions. Any reason to think that pregnant women might have potential risk of shedding replication competent virus for longer periods after symptom onset? Let's just talk about that. Remember, and Judy, I would love to hear your thoughts about that. The longest people 
um, I understand, to my understanding, that, that culturable replication competent virus has been detected in that early phase of illness was about nine to 10 days. So after that, everything appears to just be by nucleic acid amplification technology or PCR. Um, and it has assumed to be non-infectious. I don't think anybody's been shown to be infected by somebody with just that type of shedding. So I don't know the data for pregnant women. I would guess that if they do have prolonged shedding, they would not be shedding replication competent virus, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I you know, this, this positive PCR, um, and what does that mean? And is it really shedding or is it just dead virus? Um, it's so important because some people do have continued symptoms of fatigue and then they get mm -hmm. tested again and it's still positive and you don't know what that means. And so I think being able to um, have other assays that would give us more sense of whether it's an active infection or not would be important. Um, but it, it seems to be fairly prevalent that you can continue to shed for a while. And yeah. Yeah. It can be very hard when people are trying to get out of the hospital. Or <laughs> I was on a call with um, uh, several people with IDSA division chiefs last Friday, and Lizan Porofsky uh, from Mount Sinai was on, Einstein, sorry, was on. Um, and she, um, obviously, they've seen a ton of patients, and she noted that in the studies that they have looked at, where they have prospectively followed people um, with quantitative PCR, looking at the viral burden in the lung, she basically said that the amount of antigen and in the lungs over the course of weeks after infection is just staggering. And so people have a crap load of virus in their lungs. And if you've seen some of the lungs on the CT scans or in the autopsies, it's not surprising. So in other words, I think it takes a long time probably to get rid of that, of that dead virus, assuming it's dead. Um, what do you think about women with HIV and COVID-19, Dr. Courier? Yeah, well, I think HIV and COVID just in itself is a, an, a topic for a webinar, another, another conversation. I'm really looking forward to seeing more data on this. I think anecdotally and you know, completely just not based on any sort of controlled information, it does, you know, we really braced ourselves in the beginning thinking that this could be a really bad we'd see a, an upsurge in people living with HIV and it just doesn't seem talking to people around the world that we're, we're seeing that. And so understanding why that is and whether it's the same for women and men, um, it should be high on our, our radar. And I, I just keep expecting every week for some big series to come out from, from Europe that's really looking at the outcomes for, for people living with HIV. But yeah, um, I, I'm particular, I'm sorry, go ahead. But no, yeah. I'm, I think one thing that um, we, we don't have a huge amount of time, but I just want to say that I, I, I think that the, I'm really worried about the long-term pulmonary and cardiovascular um, um, effects, especially in older people and obese people, people with hypertension and diabetes, because if you look at the pathophysiology of these microthrombotic events and you think about pulmonary hypertension um, in the lungs and, and the damage that you can see in the lungs between not just the viral infection, but then also maybe pulmonary um, hypertension from clotting. And, and I, I think that really needs to be carefully looked at. And I worry about that specifically in HIV, given the long-term kind of hyper-inflammatory intravascular syndromes that we know occur. So um, I think it'd be a fantastic thing that we need to study and, and really understand. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point that the, that when it does occur, um, will the sequelae be more severe or more long-lasting? It's, it's a really, really important point. 
Well, it looks like we're almost out of time here. I, I, I feel like, you know, this conversation is um, more questions than answers, um, but I think highlight some of the areas where hopefully we will get more information and, and maybe we'll be able to come back again um, in a few months and, and, and share some of that. I just feel like the, it's so hard to keep up with everything that's going on and, um, and you know, just finding the time to, to read and, and, and understand it and, um, and digest it. And so it, it's helpful uh, just to be able to talk about it with other people. And I hope that, that this conversation has been of some value to those of you who are out there listening today. Yeah, me too. One, one, um, one good question that maybe we can answer is, is somebody asked if you had a source for CAB members to share with their communities about the latest COVID news. Maybe we could just end with that because, um, again, there's a lot of misinformation about COVID and um, trusted sources. Any, any thoughts on your side, Judy, that you have used and um, really think could be valuable? I mean, I, you know, I still go to the CDC website to get information on COVID. I, I feel like they have a, a lot of really great information that is, um, that is digestible and, and easy to, you know, help, can be explained and, and can be shared with people. So I, I really continue to use that as a, as a trusted source of information. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's the one that comes to mind uh, first. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really good. The IDSA website has some very nice resources too. That's idsociety.org. They have a nice um, kind of resource um, uh, area. And then there's some really great graphs. The Washington Post in particular has some very nice visuals um, and they're free. So very important. You can get, you don't have to get behind a paid firewall um, unlike some other publications. All right. Well, we should probably stop. I apologize that we did not get to all the questions and many of the questions probably we would not have had definitive answers for anyway, because as you notice, a lot of what we said was that we just don't know. Um, but I think it's really good to raise the questions and hopefully we can come back in a few months and revisit some of these issues. Um, I really want to thank um, Judy for uh, agreeing to do this uh, and I want to thank uh, Jose Francisco uh, who is our technical person and of course Donna Jacobson who um, who got us together for all this. I really hope you'll join us for the upcoming conversations. The next um, the next one is very special a sibling conversation right um, on July 22nd with um, COVID-19 updates from the IAS conference and then uh, the week after uh, Mike Sag and Chip Schooley will be giving you some up um, some updates. Um, because this is a brand new effort, we really, really would love your feedback. So um, was this helpful? Did you like the format? Um, we didn't want to do slides. We think everybody's, of course, totally slided out. Um, so just let us know um, what you would like and if there are topics to um, that you would like to, um, to see us address. Um, and that is the way that you can contact us. And I believe the last slide, if I'm not mistaken, is just a, uh, a slide announcing our upcoming webinars. Yes, there you go. Um, Judy, did you want to say anything else? No, I just, I wanted to thank you, Jeannie, for, um, for doing this and, um, and, and everybody for listening, for listening in today. I, I just feel like we're all, if not only are we all in this together, we're all learning about this together and, um, and just so much, so valuable to, 
hear from our colleagues um, and, um, and learn together as we work to try to really end this pandemic. Um, yeah. We've got ways to go, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, I think that we can do it. It's just going to be tough. <laughs> yeah, and we really need to do it together. And it's so helpful to know what your questions are because there were several questions here that um, really got me thinking. Um, and, and again, it's a, it's a collective effort to try to understand everything. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.